This week's Parsha, it's a double Parsha. Again, last week we had a double Parsha, and this week we have a double Parsha. Last week we started to discuss the laws of ritual purity and impurity for people. The week before that we were speaking about what makes an animal kosher or non-kosher, pure or impure. Last week, um, a very lengthy discussion about the purity and impurity of people. And this week, um, we start off with the holiest service in the temple. See, the whole idea of ritual purity and impurity is mostly relevant, mostly relevant in a temple context. When the Holy Temple stood in, the, in Jerusalem, um, the space of the Holy Temple, in other words, the Temple Mount, and then as you go further in the Temple Mount, you go into the actual temple building, the compound, and as you go into different areas within the temple, what defined the area was the rules that were governed with regard to ritual purity and impurity. If a person had contracted a certain level of ritual impurity, they were not allowed to enter a certain place. Uh, the purer they were, the more they were able to enter. But then there were certain places that just by default, one was not allowed to enter. It was something that was based on what family you came from, you're allowed to go further and further. So most people were allowed to go pretty far in the Holy Temple as long as they were ritually pure, ritually purified before they came in. However, walking into the sanctuary itself, only a Kohen was allowed to walk in. I'm not allowed to walk into the sanctuary, no matter what, no matter how pure I may be, no matter how holy I may be, no matter what, it makes no difference. Because I was not born to a Kohen, that's it, finito. Um, it has to be a Kohen that is serving in the Holy Temple. And there was one room in the Holy Temple that no one was allowed to walk in there, even if there were a Kohen, and even if they were the Kohen Gadol, the holiest of holy people, they were not allowed to walk in there ever, besides for one day a year on Yom Kippur, on the holiest day of the year. This room was the Holy of Holies, Kodesh HaKadoshim. Um, during the times of the first Holy Temple, that's where the Ark that contained the two tablets that God himself had engraved, the Ten Commandments in those two tablets, those two tablets were kept in the Ark. Um, towards the end of the first Temple era, this Ark was hidden very deep, beneath the temple compound and in these very uh, winding uh, tunnels. Uh, it was hidden very deep inside the temple mount and no one is going to find it until Mashiach will come. Uh, during the second, second temple era, the Holy of Holies stood at the exact same spot, but there was no holy ark there. Um, there was a stone at the center of the, at the, center of, the of, of that room that was known as the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone of the world, according to tradition, Creation began from that specific stone. Uh, during the first temple era, the ark rested on that stone. And then um, during the second temple era, there was, no holy of, uh, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies. However, the room had that level of holiness and no one was allowed in there. If someone walked in there and they were not a coin, they were not the coin Gadol, and it was not Yom Kippur, and even if it was Yom Kippur, they were not doing a specific service that needed to be done in the Holy of Holies, they would die. Uh, it was a very, there was very low tolerance for misbehavior in the temple area, and you were only allowed to be where you were allowed to be. Um, and the Holy of Holies was a place that only the holiest of people, the Kohen Gadol, 
on the holiest day was allowed to walk in to do the holiest type of service. And that is essentially the opening theme of the of the of the parasha of Achrevois, which means after the death. The, the, the parasha begins that God tells Moses to tell Aaron after the death of his two sons, Nadav and Abihu, their crime was that they entered um, the holy places without permission and they did a service without permission as well. And so God tells Aaron and says, be careful, this service is highly sensitive. Make sure to do it exactly as you are meant to do because if you do it perfectly, and it's going to be good. But if not, it's actually very dangerous for you. Your life depends on doing this service perfectly. So what is this service? Part one. Let's go to page two on part one. The Yom Kippur tradition. Source one from Leviticus chapter 16. God said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to indiscriminately enter the inner sanctuary behind the curtain concealing the ark. In many words, this is basically saying, do not walk into the Holy of Holies on your own. And, and so if you will not do so indiscriminately, and he will not die. If you do so indiscriminately, he will die. Uh, for in a cloud, I will appear on the ark's cover. Um, what this essentially means is that he is only allowed to enter that room with a cloud. What is this cloud? We'll see soon. Aaron should enter this inner sanctuary with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. What this means is like this. Before entering this inner sanctum, before entering the Holy of Holies, he needs to prepare two sacrifices. One is a bull, one is a ram. He must wear a sacred linen tunic and linen pants, gird himself with a linen sash, and bind his head with a linen turban. These are sacred garments. He must immerse in water and then don them. So here's another thing. See, previously we've learned that the Kohanim, the priests that served in the Holy Temple, they had a specific type of uniform that they would wear. All the priests, their uniform was just four parts to it. There was the tunic, there was the pants, there was the turban, and they had a special belt. That was it. The Kohen Gadol, in addition to those four, had another four garments, um, beautiful, beautiful, uh, colorful garments that also had gold and they had these special stones, etc. the breastplate, and there was a special uh, golden uh, uh, head plate that he would wear on his forehead, which was called the tzitz. We actually spoke about this several weeks ago. On Yom Kippur, when he walked into the Holy of Holies, he would wear only white clothing, only four uh, four part, only four pieces of clothing. So he would not wear the breastplate. He would not wear the golden, the golden plate that was above his forehead. Uh, he had a different uniform for Yom Kippur. What should he do when he comes in? What is the service that he's going to do as he walks into the Holy of Holies? He shall take a panful of fiery coals from the altar before God and a double handful of fine ketoret incense and bring them beyond the curtain. And he shall place the incense on the fire before God. The Ketoret smoke will envelop the cover of the Ark of Testimony, and he will not die. One second, just a moment here. Do you hear me? 
All right, good. Um, all righty, so here we have it. The Kohen Gadol would enter only on Yom Kippur. Before entering, there were several things he needed to do. Number one, he needed to immerse himself in a mikveh. Uh, there's a whole system of how many times he would immerse himself in the mikveh. When he would walk in, he was dressed in a specific type of clothing, which was different from his usual uniform. Um, the clothing that he walked into the Holy of Holies was devoid of any type of color, any type of gold, any type of precious stones. It was very simple. Uh, it could have been a very expensive type of linen, but it was, very, it was white and simple and clean. Um, in addition to that, he prepared certain sacrifices before walking in. And most importantly, when he walked in, it wasn't just to walk in to say, hi, God, that's it. But he walked in doing a specific service. And what was the service? He would offer ketoret, the incense offering. Now, incense was nothing new in the Holy Temple service. In fact, every day in the Holy Temple, there was an offering of incense, twice a day, in fact. In the temple, there were several different services. There was sacrifices, there was the lighting of the menorah, and there was also the offering of incense. Korbanot, sacrifices, were done on a communal level. In other words, the entire community would get together and they would offer a sacrifice in the morning and in the evening. Uh, on weekdays, individuals would come and offer sacrifices. Ketoret, the incense offering, was a communal offering. And that was offered in the morning and in the evening. Individuals never brought ketoret. Uh, the only time individuals brought ketoret was at the very beginning when they were inaugurating the tabernacle, the 12 princes, the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, they offered ketoret, but that was a very unique situation, something that was never duplicated, never replicated afterwards as well. Um, so essentially when you're talking about the temple, uh, the temple service, there was incense twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. And they would offer that incense in the sanctuary. So in the, in the, in the temple sanctuary, uh, there were two main rooms. There was the Kodesh, the Holy, and then the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, no one ever walked into there. In the Holy, you had three, um, three vessels. You had three pieces of furniture. You had the menorah that they would light every morning and evening. You had the table of the showbread. Which was, which was filled up with new bread every Shabbos. And then you had um, an altar, a golden altar, that was used exclusively for incense. The other sacrifices were offered in the courtyard, in the large altar that was there. That was for sacrifices. But incense was offered inside. In, in the room that's called the Heichal, the sanctuary, or the Kodesh, the holy, beyond that room, there was, there was like a, uh, a kapo, there was a parochet, there was a special um, veil, or special, uh, um, there was a special curtain. Beyond that curtain, that's where the ark was kept, and no one was allowed to go there unless it was the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol would walk in there on Yom Kippur, and he would offer ketorot, he would offer incense. But there was nothing inside there that he was able to burn the incense on. So he would walk in with a pail, a, a pan filled with coals. He would bring that pan in and he had another kind of a shovel full or some type of bucket that had the incense there. He would place the pan right in front of the ark or in the times of the second holy temple, he would place the pan on the Evan Shesia on the foundation stone that was in the middle of the room. And then he would 
offer the incense on the coals that were burning in that pan. When you offer incense, what happens? It becomes a big cloud. There's a cloud of that incense. So this is the cloud that is being referred to um, when he says right over here, uh, in a cloud, I will appear on the ark's cover. What it's saying is that the only time he's allowed to go in is when he is offering that cloud of incense um, that's going to cover the ark and cover the entire room. So this is the service that Aaron the high priest and all subsequent high priests are meant to do in the holy temple, in the holy of holies, on the holiest day of the year, which is Yom Kippur. <clears throat> Later on, we'll learn more about the significance of the service and what it meant. But till we get there, we're going to discuss some of the technicalities associated with this service. So here's the deal. In the Torah, it says that it says um, that you will he will show himself with a cloud. Now, a general uh, a general uh, how would you call it introduction to the following discussion. When Moses received the Torah at Mount Sinai, and he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, etc. So Moses received from God two Torahs. He received the Torah that he was meant to write, which is called the written Torah. And he also received Torah Shebaal Peh, which is called oral law. So for example, in the written Torah, this is the example we use all the time, and there are many, many more examples, but in the written Torah, all it says with regard to the mitzvah of tefillin is you shall bind it as a sign on your arm and you shall write it as a sign between your eyes. Meaningless words. Essentially meaningless words. And Moses was wondering, what is this all about? So God says, yes, this is what you're going to write in the written Torah. And I'm going to teach you what that means. And God taught Moses all the laws about tefillin. He taught him how to make tefillin how tefillin are meant to how, how they're meant to look and how they're meant to be worn, etc. Or take even more than that. In the Torah, it states, "Eye for an eye, arm for an arm, a leg for a leg." Which, if you translate that literally, which means is, if Joe pops out Frank's eye, what is the punishment? Pop out Joe's eye. If he chops off Frank's arm. Chop off Joe's arm. This is the literal meaning of the words in the written Torah. And God told Moses, although this is what's going to be written in the written Torah, according to tradition, this is the wrong way of translating these words. And in Jewish law, such a thing has no place. If Joe pops out Frank's eye, you do not pop out Joe's eye. Joe needs to pay reparations to Frank for his eye. He has to pay the value of his eye. And there are different ways of evaluating the amount that Joe needs to pay. But if anyone comes and says, no, I'm just going to read the, the, the book as the book is. And since it says eye for an eye, therefore the, the, the punishment for popping out Frank's eye is that we pop out Joe's eye. This is heresy. Why? Because the same prophet that received the written Torah that same prophet Moses received the oral Torah, and that oral tradition came together with the written tradition. 
In the same manner, and this is something that is associated with almost every single mitzvah, every single law in the Torah, there isn't a law in the Torah that can be understood properly by reading it directly from the book. It must be understood together with the tradition that was received from Sinai, was given to Moses, and has been passed down from generation to generation. I'm write that now. With regard, with regard to the service of Yom Kippur, one can ask the same question, because if you read the words of the Torah literally, it would seem that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would take the fire pan filled with coals all the way up to the curtain, and as he's standing outside of the Holy of Holies, that's when he should put the incense on the fire pan, and as the fire pan is burning with the incense and the cloud is coming up from the fire pan, with that cloudy fire pan, that's how he should enter the Holy of Holies. But this is incorrect. God told Moses in the Torah Shabalpan, the oral tradition, that the correct way of the Kohen Gadol entering the Holy of Holies and doing the, in doing the service of the incense is that he should walk into the Holy of Holies with a fire pan of burning coals. And in a separate pan or a little jug, he should have the incense. And after setting down the fire pan in the Holy of Holies, that's when he should take the incense and offer the incense onto the fire pan. And then the cloud of incense comes up and it fills up the Holy of Holies. So you have the written Torah, which seems to imply that the incense should be placed onto the fiery coals before entering the Holy of Holies. But the oral tradition, which was received by Moses from God and passed down from generation to generation, clearly states that the proper way of doing it is that the Kohen Adol should walk in with a fire pan of coals and offer the incense while he is already inside the Holy of Holies. About a thousand years, or 1,200 years after the giving of the Torah, we started to have trouble. It was during the times of the Second Holy Temple. And let's go to source number two. This is a direct quote from Maimonides in his book of Mishneh Torah when he talks about the laws of the Yom Kippur service. Heresy sprung up in Israel in the Second Temple era, and the Sadducees emerged. In Hebrew, they're called Sdokim. May they speedily perish, who rejected the oral law. They maintain that the Yom Kippur incense is first placed on the coals in the outer sanctuary, outside the curtain of the Holy of Holies, and when its smoke arises, it is brought into the Holy of Holies. Their rationale was based on Torah's phrase, for in a cloud I will appear on the ark's cover. They understood this as a reference to the cloud of incense. But our sages learned from the oral tradition that the incense is to be placed on the coals in the Holy of Holies, before the ark. As the verse states, and he shall place the incense on the fire before God. Okay, so now there's, there became this, this controversial issue. You had the Sadducees who were promoting this idea that the real way to offer the incense during the, the Yom Kippur service was specifically by offering it on the coals outside of the Holy of Holies and then entering the Holy of Holies. Since the high priests of the, of the Second Temple era were suspect of heresy, see this heresy of the Sadducees had seeped into the highest echelons of, of Jewish society. It was a real problem. And even the high priests were suspect that they may be Sadducees as well. 
the elders would have him take an oath on the day preceding Yom Kippur. They would tell him, my sir, the high priest, we are agents of the court and you are our agent and an agent of the court. We administer an oath to you in the name of he who causes his name to dwell in this house, which is God, that you not deviate from our instructions. Now, it's interesting if you think about it. You'd think that the high priest was in charge of the temple. That's not true. The high court, the Sanhedrin, they were in charge of everything in Judaism. In fact, they had an edge over the high priest for sure. They had an edge over the king. They were the Torah authority of the Jewish people. And so the high priest was serving in the holy temple. He was doing so based on the instructions of the high court. In fact, before a priest was able to serve in the holy temple in the first place, he first had to go through a rigid background check from the high, from, from the high court. What was the background check? The background check was to know if he actually comes from the family of Aaron the high priest. And this was one of the things that the high court was busy with all day, trying to track down the lineage. Only a Kohen, someone who came from a family that came, you know, it was, it was an unbroken lineage back to Aaron the high priest. Only such a Kohen was allowed to serve in the holy, in the holy temple. So the high court was in control of many of the aspects of the holy temple and especially of how things should happen, of how the service should be done. However, during the second temple era, there was a lot of corruption and the, specifically the office of the high priest was something that was controlled by the Romans. The Romans controlled that office and many times they would give that office to the highest bidder. And so there was a real problem it was a real problem. So the, the elders, they were worried that there were Sadducees that were paying their way into the high priesthood. And so when they met up with the high priest before, the, before Yom Kippur, they would administer the oath and would say, swear to us that you are going to do the service on Yom Kippur exactly as is prescribed according to tradition. Now listen to what happened after that. He would turn away and cry for being suspected of heresy. And they would turn away and cry because they suspected a person without knowing his opinions. Maybe he had no such thoughts in his heart. Now this is going to be the focus of the Rebbe's talk here. You know, we, we can understand why they had to administer the oath. We can understand why Maimonides gives us the background of what was going on during the Second Temple era. There was a real struggle going on over the soul of the nation, over how Torah is going to be transmitted, over the integrity of the oral law. And therefore, it was necessary for them to administer this oath to every kind adult to ensure that they are going to do the service properly. But interestingly enough, Maimonides and Mishnah Torah, which is not a storybook and it's not a history book, it's a book of Jewish law. This book of Jewish law records that after they would administer this oath, the high priest would go and cry, and the agents of the temple of, of, of the of the court would also turn away and cry. Crying was part of the system. Why? What why are they crying? What's the problem? So he said the reason why they're crying is because they suspected someone of something that he's really not guilty of. That's a terrible thing to suspect someone of something they're not guilty of. But hey. If it happened, great. If it's a history book, I understand why it belongs here. But this is a law book. Why are we including this little historical tidbit 
this historical nugget in a book of Jewish law. That's essentially the core question and the idea, the theme that the Rebbe is going to address in this talk. Okay, so there's a talk from the Rebbe. It comes from Shabbos of Toshim, I guess yet again, from 1954. Maimonides writes, I'm on page three, on the bottom of the page. The Holy of Holies, and when its smoke arises, it is brought into the Holy of Holies. Their rationale was based on Torah's phrase, for in a crowd, okay, so, so it brings the entire story of Maimonides, and let's go to, to the end of the second paragraph over here, third paragraph on the page. This is quite puzzling. Why do they force the high priest to swear that he won't deviate and then cry for suspecting him? If it is considered undesirable behavior to suspect him, why did they administer the oath without investigating his opinions? Let's first find out. Where is this guy hold? Where, where, where is he in the, in the situation? And they administered to all of them. They administered the oath to all of them, and by all of them, they turned around and cried. And if Torah rules that the oath must be administered regardless, why cry? They had merely fulfilled God's instructions. Another question, why would the high priest cry for being administered the oath? Was he responsible for being suspected? Interesting question here. I mean, he, he knows, everyone knows what, what happens every year. But for some reason, crying is an integral part of this process. So here we bring an interesting uh, quote from the Talmud. And you have to take it in context, okay? Don't, let's not just uh, take this as like a blanket way of, of um, associating guilt on everyone. But let's understand it in a certain context. The Talmud states the following. Rabbi Reuven ben Itzter Robili said, A person won't be suspected of something unless he did it. If he didn't do it fully, he did it partially. If he did not do it partially, he planned to do it. And if he didn't plan to do it, he saw others do it and he was happy. Interesting concept. Talmud is saying, essentially what the Talmud is saying is like this. Whenever a person is accused of something, again, we don't, we don't right away accuse, we don't right away, um, uh, how do you say, we don't right away decide, okay, they're guilty. Of course not. Of course, just because someone accused someone of something doesn't mean they did it. However, nothing is random in this world. Nothing is random. God runs the world. And this is essentially something that has to do with the, the person who is being accused himself, how they have to view the situation. See, the worst thing is to be accused of doing something that you've never done. Of course. If you haven't done it, there's no reason for you to be accused of it. There's no reason for you to admit guilt. If you didn't do anything wrong, you didn't do anything wrong. However, the fact that this happened is a wake-up call. If I'm being accused of X, Y, and Z, now, I know I didn't do it, so I don't admit guilt. Of course not. And whoever's accusing me of doing so is guilty of accusing someone who is clean of, all, of, of, of any association to this terrible sin, Right? However, in my heart of hearts, I have to think to myself, why is God allowing this to happen? Perhaps, perhaps, uh, I saw someone else do it, and I either helped them, or I turned a blind eye, or perhaps I was happy that this was done, for whatever reason. I took pleasure in the fact that this happened. 
who knows? Who knows? It's very possible. And therefore, I have to kind of get rid of any type of association with this thing. Again, just because someone's accused of something doesn't mean that they're guilty. Of course not. But the Talmud is saying that if someone is accused of something, they must have some type of association to it, either in deed or in speech or in thought. No one is ever going to be guilty for thoughts that they have. No one is ever going to be uh, convicted in court for a thought that they had, right? You can't be convicted for thoughts. But in your relationship with God, thoughts matter. In your relationship even with yourself, with your character, your thoughts matter. And therefore we have to be conscious and sensitive to the types of thoughts that we have, to the types, types of things that we say, not even in public, in private. Who knows? And, and therefore, what, what this Talmud is telling us is a person should never dismiss what happens around him or her as, oh, this guy's just being a bad person and accusing me of something that I have absolutely no connection to. If I'm being accused of it, let me search through my thoughts, my speech. Perhaps I have some type of association with this type of negative trait, this type of negative action in a way that's obviously not deserving of being accused of it, but something that would give me some type of association with it. So that's one point to keep in mind. Another point to keep in mind is, let's try to understand what is the meaning, what is the, the, the specialty, what is the uniqueness of this service that was done in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. Source number four, quote from, the, from, from Medrash Tamchuma. The high priest would place the incense in a pan on Yom Kippur and enter the most sacred spot, the Holy of Holies. If the cloud of incense ascended upward with a cluster, like a cluster of grapes, he knew that Israel's sins were forgiven and his service was acceptable. But if the smoke of the incense did not cover the ark, he knew that he would die. Consequently, the high priest and all Israel trembled from the moment the high priest entered the Holy of Holies until he withdrew in peace. When he would exit, the people of Israel would rejoice that it had been received favorably. God said, of all the sacrifices you offer, the incense is most beloved. So this incense offering on Yom Kippur was high-risk business. The entire nation depended on it. They all depended on it. When the, young, when, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, this was paramount to like, imagine you have a situation where, um, you know, I mean, this is just like a, a weird idea, but imagine you have a nuclear bomb that's about to explode. And if it explodes, um, you know, the entire nation is just going to die as a result of this explosion. And there is one highly qualified and trained human being that's able to go into the silo and kind of, you know, disconnect these, these two wires. And if he disconnects them properly, it's not going to detonate. But if he, if he doesn't manage to do it, oy vey. So you can imagine, and, and imagine that, that the entire nation, they're, they're watching live television and the cameras are on the silo. And there's this one guy that's all dressed up and he has his you know, suitcase filled with whatever tools he needs. And he's going into the silo. Again, this is just imagination. It's probably sci-fi, but just to give you a little bit of a feeling of what was going on there. So from the time the guy disappears into the silo, 
you can imagine what the entire nation is going to be feeling. They're, they're holding their breath because in about two minutes, if he doesn't manage to do what he has to do, we're bye-bye. And then you can imagine what happens two minutes later when he comes out and he, you know, he, he does the V sign, victory or whatever, you know, peace. Uh, and everyone just, ah, you know, uh, uh, you know it, 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 it's such a sigh of relief. So you can imagine that, first of all, we're going to pick the most highly trained individual. And before he goes down, what are we going to tell them? Hey, dude, you better do this right, right? Everyone's depending on you. Why? Because our lives depend on it. Your life depends on it. Our lives depend on it. Everything depends on it. This is essentially what was going on when the Kohen Gadol entered the Holy of Holies. Uh, God loves this incense offering. In fact, the incense offering was so potent that if it was done properly, it could stop a plague. If it was done improperly, it could bring upon the person death. So it was extremely high risk. This was a very, very potent situation. This was a high risk situation. So let's... Um, Let's continue in, in, on page six. The explanation. The high priest would turn away and cry because, as our sages taught, a person won't be suspect unless dot, dot, dot. In other words, if you are suspected, you clearly are somewhat capable of it. If it was indeed out of question, you would never have been suspected of it. So the reason why the Kohen Gadol turns away and cries is because even though he never had thoughts of heresy, etc., but from the fact that he lives in an era where heresy is so prevalent, and the fact that, that the problem is so, it, it, it's, it's so um, common to the point that the high court felt it necessary to make it official that every year they are going to administer an oath to the high priest, that itself is a reason for the high priest to cry. The fact that he lives in such an era, the fact that he is in a position which could be associated with heresy. But now here comes the best part. They would turn away and cry because they suspected a person without knowing his opinions. Maybe he had no such thoughts in his heart. They were compelled to administer the oath despite the unpleasantness of the exchange to ensure that the Yom Kippur service in the Holy of Holies was executed properly. They had to do it because everyone depends on it. For the Ketorah service of the high priest in the Holy of Holies was a most important service that had profound implications for the Jewish people's upcoming year. The high priest, bull, and ram had various levels of significance. There was the sacrifice of the high priest, of his household, and of his tribe, and of the entire people of Israel, and other sacrifices as well. However, the Torah service on Yom Kippur was a singular service that was carried out only once a year on the holiest day and the holiest spot, the Holy of Holies. And by the most sanctified Jew in the nation, the holy nation, as the verse states, and Aaron was separated to be sanctified as holy of holy. Because of the lofty nature of this service, it was important to do everything possible to ensure that it was carried out correctly, even if it would imply that we suspect another Jew. However, they retained their feelings of Ahavat Yisrael, love for their fellow Jew. They were profoundly disturbed by the fact that they needed to suspect another Jew, even by the command of the Torah, to the point that they were moved by tears, which according to Kabbalah represents extensions of our intellect. They were so bothered by it that they couldn't even fathom, how is it possible that we should actually suspect another Jew of such thoughts? And so even though they were compelled to administrate the oath, they were so bothered by it that they started to cry. 
In other words, the more they contemplated the matter, the more they could not contain their distress to the point that it was expressed through tears. So what's the lesson that we can learn from this? Let's look at page eight, part three. Here we see the great value of loving your fellow. The teaching speaks of the day before Yom Kippur, when everyone is occupied with their preparations for the holy day of forgiveness. The elders of the court were making the final preparations to ensure that the Yom Kippur Torah, the incense offering in the Holy of Holies, would be carried out properly. And they therefore administered the oath to the high priest. And after they had fulfilled their Torah-given obligation in a matter to significant, so significant and so vital, they would leave in tears because they were forced to suspect another Jew. And this was canonized as a ruling by Maimonides regarding the Yom Kippur service. If we need a lesson about the significance of loving your fellow, this one law will do. As said, the physical temple no longer exists, but nevertheless it is represented in a spiritual form through our thoughts and speech and prayer and even in action by fulfilling deeds that aren't limited to the temple era. The same is true here. We learn a powerful lesson about the significance of loving your fellow. You see, even though the high court, the elders, they, they were dealing with very serious business. They were dealing with the life of the nation. It's right before Yom Kippur. Everyone depends on this. But they did not lose their sensitivity to this person's humanity. Yes, we have to administer the oath because that's what we have to do because there is a problem. But we're suspecting someone of something so grave, of something so terrible, and that distressed them to the point that they cried. The Rebbe is going to, I mean, the Rebbe said this actually was not from Ketoshim. It was actually, uh, the, the talk was on the Shabbos, Shabbos Bereshis. It was the Shabbos right after Simchas Torah. So Simchas Torah was a very busy time by the Rebbe. It was a very exciting time. There were thousands of Hasidim that would come. And, um, you know, the, the synagogue was not built to hold so many people, you know, with, with six feet apart. Let's put it that way. Uh, it wasn't very COVID conscious, especially then. So in that synagogue, um, probably sitting, you could have, I don't know, a thousand people maybe, but you had about six to 7,000 chassidim or maybe even more that wanted to participate in hakafot and other parts of, of the service. The place was packed. And, and you know what happens when people are packed together. There's a lot of pushing and shoving and jostling and people. Now, everyone that walked into that room was at your own risk. You knew, you knew that this is what you expect. Um, yes, there was a certain part for the elders and they, were, they weren't necessarily pushed around, but anyone under the age of 60 was pretty much subject to a lot of pushing and shoving and everyone took it in stride. That, that's the way it is. But the only person who was actually disturbed by it was the Rebbe himself. And the Rebbe continues this talk, which is the day after Simchas Torah, and the Rebbe says like this. This all connects to Simchas Torah. We see that on Simchas Torah, a situation might arise a situation might arise in which you do not properly respect another person's dignity. And it is even possible that you will push him. Right? And, and everyone expected that. Rebbe says like this, the above lesson teaches us how careful we must be to preserve another person's dignity. Even when the elders of the court fulfill their obligation, administering the oath of the high priest to fulfill their instructions without adding anything else, it still brought them to tears. 
We raise this subject because of this situation. If someone suspects that he may have pushed the fellow without pure intentions, everything will be forgiven if you'll apologize to the individual, but it needs to bother you to the point of tears. So that says, I'm not saying that you guys are just pushing and shoving just to hurt people. No, you, you were doing it with the best of intentions. You know, you, you all wanted to be in the right place at the right time, and that's great. And everyone walked in expecting to get a little shove and a jab and a little, you know, pinch. But if you did it to someone, go and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because even though you did it with the holiest of intentions and it was the holiest context, you were Simchas Torah, what could be greater and holier than that? But if you push the fellow Jew, it should bother you. In fact, this brings to mind a very fascinating story that I heard from a, a, a guy, his name is Mendel Nuttick. Mendel Nuttick, when he was a young yeshiva student, he was in Brooklyn, and uh, he had an interesting, uh, distinct role that he played. He actually would work in the Rebbe's home, the Rebbe's private home. He would uh, do deliveries for them. and so, so he had a lot of interactions with the Rebbe's wife, the Rebbetson. Um, typically, she was not seen by the crowd. Most people didn't even know that she existed, really. Uh, but he was one of the few that would come into the house all the time and help out uh, whatever was needed in the, ho- in the house. And he said that once, um, I, I don't recall exactly how this, conversa- how this conversation came about, but, but the Rebbetson told him that it was during the, it was, it was when World War II broke out, they were living, she and the Rebbe were living in Paris. And when the Nazis came and they started bombing France and bombing Paris, uh, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin, they, they were fleeing Paris and they were on the roads. And even when they were on the roads, you know, the Luftwaffe would come and they would start to shoot, you know, on, on all the, 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 those that were fleeing, all the refugees. And she said that um, they were on the road at one point and all of a sudden, you know, the cursed Nazis, they started to come down and start to shoot on them. And so they all, you know, ran to the side of the road and she said there was an older man that was still standing. And I, I pushed him. I pushed him to the ground. The Rebetzin said, I pushed him to the ground and a few bullets really like came to exactly where he was standing. I, be- I saved his life. But she said, till today, I feel bad that I pushed him. So Mendel Nuttick said, Rebetzin, you, you saved his life. She said, but when you push a Jew, it's got to bother you. So she said, it, she, she, you know, she saved his life, but she had to shove a fellow Jew. She said, that's something that, that, that bothers her until today. What's the idea here? Even when you need to do something for their own good or for the benefit of the entire community, never lose your sensitivity to the person. And if you think that that person may have been insulted, may have been hurt, try to make it right. In fact, I had this, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, I, I had this experience this week. Um, I was invited to participate in a, in a Zoom, a conference. It was it was, uh, there was a lot of people involved, etc., and I had a specific slot that I had to participate in. And a few minutes before, I, I wasn't yet on the Zoom. I was taking care of something. The MC gives me a, he calls me, and he just wanted to, like, find out where, where I was, if I'm going to be there on time. And I told him, yeah, I'll be there in about 60 seconds. But uh, it was interesting. Like, on the phone call, I could tell that he was very distracted. He wasn't, he wasn't very engaged in the very short conversation. But I, I wasn't, you know, he's an MC and he's busy. The next day, he sends me a message. And he says, I just want to uh, clarify that yesterday when I called you, uh, I expected to have a short conversation with you and to be engaged in the conversation. But as I was calling you, something happened on the Zoom. I had to go and mute someone. There was something going on. So I was, I was distracted. I, I couldn't really you know, focus on the conversation. 
I just want to make sure that, you know, it was, it's nothing against you. I was just very distracted. And I was very impressed. I was not insulted, although I did notice that he was a little bit cold and detached on the phone call. Um, but I, I didn't blame him because, you know, he's, he, I know what it means to MC an international Zoom. I, I know what it takes. Um, and, uh, but, but he made the call. He, you know, afterwards, he sent me that message. And I was so impressed by that. Um, always try to, to ensure that whoever you engage with, even though for their own good, you had to, you know, say something that is perhaps sharp or rough or whatever it is, always try to uh, make, make things smooth uh, because who is greater than the elders of the high court on the eve of Yom Kippur, ensuring that the Yom Kippur service, which is relevant to the entire nation, the life of the entire nation depends on it. And they're making sure that it's done properly. But because the oath they needed to administer had such a terrible taste that they were, that, that, that they were so to speak, accusing someone of perhaps harboring thoughts of heresy, it caused them to cry. It caused them such, such distress. Nothing can be so important as to cause us to become desensitized from the feelings of another person. And this is a lesson that we learn from a law that was canonized by Maimonides about the holiest thing that could be done on the holiest day of the year by the holiest person and has ramifications for the entire Jewish nation. And yet, sensitivity to our fellow is paramount. Uh, the sensitivity did not stop them from administering the oath. You got to do what you got to do. You have to make sure that whatever Torah tells us to do should be done and should be, uh, and should be done properly. However, if it's something that causes someone distress, that causes someone discomfort, it's something that should distress you and try to make it nice. And if you can't make it nice, at least you should cry about it. If you're going to cry about that, you'll make sure that when it's not necessary to cause someone else distress, you will definitely not cause them distress. And uh, that's the class for today. Thank you all for joining us and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. To our